Welcome to the Investment Cuddle. Episode 24. I'm Gary and I'm here with Philip. And today on the podcast, we're going to talk pensions. So yeah, so we've talked a little bit there about ways of contributing. And I was chatting a bit there about when you first start work, can you actually get into the scheme? So when is an ideal time to start a pension? As early as possible. Technically, the minute you were born, and if you have any money, starting then, because it's all about compounded growth. And it there, it's more because you're paying in small amounts over a very long period of time and getting the interest off those for a very long period of time. It is time in the market, which is important. Because if you start off as soon as you're born, you're looking at a 68 to 70 year investment horizon compound growth and as you would have seen in previous episodes uh, such as the one on inflation and pressure you look at some of those compounded growth assumptions like five percent three percent and seven percent you can see they grow exponentially very very quickly and they get some very very large numbers the longer you're in the market so you're basically saying as early as possible so if you're not starting one for your children or your grandchildren as you said which is which is possible you know, you can do um, self-invested pension plans for juniors. That's correct, yes. And what it is, is the important thing is, to, as soon as you can join a scheme, join it, even if you're only paying small amounts of money, because you can slowly increase the contributions over time. And also, what I've found is, once you've got into the habit of saving monthly, regularly, you don't get used to spending that money. And therefore, it's easier. If you can do it on paycheck number one or paycheck number two, saving 5% of that paycheck becomes a lot easier because you never really got used to spending it. Right. So I think the principle there is start as early as possible. And the, and the thing I was kind of leading to was, and I can't remember what age I was. I mean, obviously, obviously everybody on the show is 27. So it wasn't that long ago. But I think I was in my late teens sitting with a financial advisor had been coming to talk to my dad and his rule of thumb seemed to be take your age, halve it. So yeah, that's correct. So it's take the age that you start your pension scheme and halve it. And that's roughly what you and your company should be paying into it as a percentage of your income. Yeah. So you turn around and say, you, you know, you come out of school, let's say you come out at, 16 so it's going to be an eight percent contribution whereas if you start your pension at 30 40. or even 40 you're talking about a 20 percent contribution which for most people is huge yeah. as a proportion of what you get in your pocket every month yeah and if you left it a bit later and said oh it's 40, 45 you're going right it's 20 22 and a half percent you need to put in there for until your retirement age every year it's a lot yeah it's, it's crazy amounts of contribution at a time when you are potentially spending money on other things like rent mortgage sure. car payments sure. yeah perish the thought um they're not expensive are they um lego and juice yes <laughs> well quite and and so in some respects then the earlier you start, the easier it is? Yes. Potentially? Yes. 
because one of the things you mentioned, if you look at some of the, uh, in a previous podcast, we said investing for children, we put out the wild suggestion of starting a uh, a pension plan for your ch- a child or a grandchild. For them, because they've got like a 60 to 65 year investment horizon, there it's going to be quite easy for their pension to grow to a million pounds by the time they're retired. In fact, their biggest problem is it could be quite very, very large and gets taxed heavily. But that's a positive problem to have that most people don't have. A million pound pot, pension pot, sounds like a lot of money, doesn't it? Yeah. But if you were to look at an income, it pays you. If you were to buy an annuity, you'd be looking at sort of like it paying about 30,000 a year, approximately that sort of order of magnitude. Quite, quite comfortable to live on, but it's not a millionaire's lifestyle. No, I think that, that that's put in those terms. That doesn't necessarily then feel like a lot of money, does it? No. Because surely then you'd be turning around and saying, well, I can take, I can take more of that out, can't I? Sure. Well, yes, but then you might not find that it's the same. You then have to cut back later in life. Or if, yeah, and that's, that probably brings us on to the things like going that the, the downside of pensions, because there are certain limitations. Because this is an agreement between you and the state, the government, that if you manage your own pension, we'll give you good tax breaks. But to make sure you're not stupid, I'm going to put limits on what you can do with it and when you can do it, when you can spend it. So there's certain limits in the UK where the law currently stands worth. You can't draw money out of your pension until 10 years before the statutory retirement age. And that is defined as the year you would be able eligible to receive your state pension. Now, people who are retiring this year, their statutory retirement age is 65. So therefore, the first part, the earliest they could access their pension would be 55. There are certain very special circumstances you can get it earlier than that, usually when you've got a very, very short time to live. But otherwise, as a general rule, it, you can't touch your pension before you're 55 without some very, very large tax payments, which means it's not worth touching. Now, for the rest of us who won't retire in the next couple of years, our statutory retirement age will be more like 68. So therefore, we could not access our pension until we're 58. So there is that that you need to worry about. It's locked up. For most people, that's a good thing because it means it prevents them going to take it out and spending it on something else like a Ferrari or a bigger extension on your house. Well, I was just I was just reading Keith's comment there about he's going to wait until he's sixty to pay thirty percent. I think by that point he'll probably be wanting to buy buy the Ferrari. <laughs> it might be quicker. <laughs> Sounds like a better option, doesn't it? Dear oh dear. But I think that's so. You, you've you've kind of gone into you know the, the sort of retirement element. I think that one's interesting to me because you're. I look at retirement and I've still got sixty five years of age in my brain it's just it's just stuck and i know now as you said state pensions are different age for certain people and the time at which you can draw that pension you if you've got a defined benefit or defined contribution is potentially earlier than that but there's there's penalties involved in that certainly in the defined benefit scheme and i guess from a defined contribution you're actually then spending that money earlier than you perhaps are otherwise advised to so this whole thing about 65, what's, what's the background there? Why, why was it set at 65? It's quite a funny story. 
It's always been 65 since Lloyd George introduced the state pension back in the early part of the Edwardian period in the 1900s. Um, basically, because it was the joke at the time was, it's a great thing, all the public loved it, and I virtually never have to pay it. Because what you found was the average death at the, when the state pension first came, it was only for men. And it was that you expected to that was used to pay for you and your wife and your family when you retired. But the average de- death of a, an average man at that period was about 60. So therefore, quite a lot of people never actually got to retire. It was quite a very small number of people that were old enough to claim the state pension. If you look at the death rates now, I believe that if you were to go back and move the age so that there is roughly the same proportion of the population that died, the state pension age would be closer to 90. But it's always stuck at 65 since it is introduced because it's 65. It then just became enshrined at 65. And since the early 1900s, our life expectancy has grown quite substantially since then. Right. So, sorry, the, the 90 bit, where did you get the 90 bit from? So that's just looking at the average death rate in the UK and saying, well, only 10% of the population ever lived long enough to get it. What's roughly the 90 percentile of the average death rate? So what's roughly the age to get 90% of your year group would still be alive? And it's about 90, somewhere around the 90s. Okay, right. Because the numbers I'd looked at were averages in terms of about the average that's age. The problem is, and that's, that's where it comes out because average is the mean bit, which is great. But it means half the people have died and half the people are still left. Right. So Very, very few people when it first came out ever lived long enough to claim it. It certainly wasn't 50% of the population. So you're not going to get 90-year-olds still in the workplace. And this is not me trying to be ageist, but you're just not, surely, because, you know, for, for people of that age group, they're probably going to spend quite a lot of time doing other things like... By the time you've been to the opticians, the doctors, the chemist, or whatever, you're going to need time <laughs> off work bet. just to go just to go and do the the medical you side. You say of, that OAP spend most of the time with the doctors and the um. Well, I just, no, but what I'm suggesting is that having experienced, there's a large proportion of my family now that are of a certain age, let's say, and they wouldn't have time. <laughs> to go into work so they you know the companies are not going to say yeah fine i'm just imagining a scene where you've got people who normally retire at 65 at 75 and 85 if you're average 90 hey you're was it 10 percent percentile of 90 you're not going to have people wandering around the workplace yeah. because short of anything they're going to be a bit of a health and safety hazard aren't they um yeah edit <laughs> You said it, not me. <laughs> this is going. This is going down the wrong road. Um, well, you we talk about rabbit holes, Gary. <laughs> you're worried about me jumping down. Them. No, I just, I just can't imagine a workplace. I mean, I'm getting of an age where now I'm kind of thinking, well, you know what? I'm not that far off retirement. Well, here's thankfully. some interesting stats for you. So I've just looking on the ONS website, the Office of National Statistics, looking at the historic birth and death rates and age of death in the UK. So what they're quoting here is the mean, what they're quoting here is the median death rate. So this means half the population is older than this, uh, is still alive at this age, but half the population is dead at this age for each year they were born. So when you're looking at the 1850s 
any time from the 1850s backwards, the average age of death for a male was about 40 years. You then start to see a bit of an improvement from about the 1870s onwards. And you really start seeing an um, improvement in average death, higher death ages from about 1890s onwards. So by the time you get to 1890, for a man, your average age of death is 44 years. By the time you get to like 1930, your average age of death is 58. By the time you get to 1950, your average age of death is 66 years. And by the time you get to 2010, for a man, your average age of death is 79. Now, for females, it's always a couple of years uh, older on average that they die, as women tend to live a couple of years longer. But that just shows you. So when they introduced the um, state national insurance back in sometime about 1900, 1910, the average age of death for a male was just below or just above 50 years. So to get to 65 wasn't many of the population who ever the chancellor was ever going to have to pay it to. It's not really until you got to 1950 that half the blooming population survived long enough to claim the state pension. I think in summary, then, we're, cl- we're clearly living too long and the government need to um, or work, was it work, work and pensions department need to sponsor. Um, I don't know. Let's say let's say a fizzy drinks company. We won't we won't promote any on here or tobacco um, to tobacco, chocolate and alcohol as a really good pastime for most people so they can get the <laughs> people so out the way a bit quicker. Well, it's just, so, you know, it, it's, it's a crazy you. situation, isn't it? So, yeah, so we're obviously clearly all living too long in that sense. So, you know, we, ca- we can't rely on the government to keep the age limit down. So that, the, the age is only going to go one way for the state pension, which then brings you back to the whole thing on retirement is, you know, you've got your defined contribution or your individual pension, and starting at appropriate time, when you get that million pound pot together, what else do you do with the money when you come to retirement then, whether you're 58 or 65 or whatever, 90, what are you going to do with it? So there's two things you can do with it. You can buy an annuity or you can do what is called drawdown, where you sell bits of your pension investments, those bits of the money and you live off them or you live off the dividends from your pension pot. Now, a lot of people don't like annuities, but it does have a very good point. An annuity is a it is an income life insurance policy. They, the insurance company guarantees to pay that amount of money every year until you die. And what people have a big problem with is actually understanding and estimating how long they're going to live. Now, when you're looking at very big populations like a, a, a life insurance company, it follows nice statistical patterns. You'll have a median, you'll have, and you'll have a distribution. And if you've got a million people in your pension scheme that you're selling annuities to, you can pretty accurately estimate how many people are going to die and when they're going to die because they very, very ma- well match the death statistics. When you're doing it on your own, you could be anywhere from someone who's, who basically survives six weeks into retirement before they die, or you could go on to live to 103. But you've still got your pension pot still has to cover that risk because you don't know when you're going to die. So by pooling the risk over a large number of people by an insurance company, they're going, yes, any one individual, I don't know when you're going to die. But of the million customers that I've sold life insurance to, 
oh, yes, I very accurately know what those million, we are where those million people will die in that distribution. So I'm, I'm not taking on much risk. But when you, because of that, you, they effectively pay you what the average person is going to die at. So therefore, if you live longer, happy days, because the people who died earlier effectively subsidized you. But if you're doing it on your own, you can't do that because you've got to carry the risk that you might run out of money because you might live to 103. Right. So again, it comes down to your risk balance. And, and maybe can I uh, be as bold to say maybe, you know, a bit on what your family history is medically as well? That can do as well. But also another <clears throat> one is when you start getting very, very old, are you really wanting to manage all this yourself? When you get to like 75, 80, there is a quite a strong element to buying an annuity because you're, somebody else manages it and they, they guarantee to pay it into your bank account every, every month. Because I think by the time I get to 80, 90, I might not have all the faculties to really want to manage my own money in that much detail and my investments. Well, yeah, and I, and I get that element. Surely you, you aren't you just going to go um, barbarous relics and Bitcoin? You've got to sell those and you've got to not get fleeced when you're selling it <laughs> to turn it into money that the Sainsbury's, Morrison's and Lidl will accept as payment. Maybe in this great scheme, they will one day accept Bitcoin and barbarous relics as payment, but they don't at the moment. They demand Bank of England's finest fiat money. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's it, isn't it? You know, you, it comes back to the whole, you know, pensions feeling a long, a long or retirement feeling a long way off and therefore pensions are something you can worry about tomorrow. and But I think at the moment you said, you know, annuities, bit of cash maybe, you can invest in property. Obviously, if you've got defined contribution pension scheme, you're probably going to have that in stocks and shares or bonds already Not as you contribute amount. to that. So, yeah, we, we, we jest about those other items, but actually, you know, that that's another thing to think about, isn't it? About how much money do you want to have available to spend essentially mm. to keep yourself in some sort of reasonable standard of living. Because even when we talked about the defined benefit previously, you know, when those schemes were in their prime, what would you, what would you get? Two thirds salary when you retired? Something of that order. Yeah. So, Half you know, you're, yeah. And I mean, you know, that worries people because you suddenly then turn around and say, well, I've only got two thirds of what I had coming in before. And I think whilst, you know, you turn around and say that's less money, actually a lot of people find they're spending less money in retirement than they are when they were working. There's less vending machines available and coffee shops and whatever else, perhaps, yes. I don't know. But yeah, you're spending less money. So that's not so much of a concern, but you do want to have something to make up that third if you consider maintaining your standard of living important. Mm -hmm. So if you were going to do that, then, you know, we've talked about pensions. How else do you either find that, that gap or how else do you fund your retirement? Are there, are, you know, is the pension the, the panacea or, or have we got options to go for something else? There's other options. There are other tax wrappers you can use. You can use a standard ISA. Because the difference between a standard ISA and a pension is in a pension, the income in your, uh, and your investments you put into it and the, and the investments you, in it grow tax-free, but the income that comes out of it is taxed. 
Whereas an ISA, the income you put into it has been taxed. It grows tax-free, but anything comes out of back end is tax-free. There's also something that's fairly new, which is called a lifetime ISA. To buy, you can use it, but it can only be used for certain things. So it's a bit more limited. The government will pay you 20% bonus up to a certain amount, £1,000 a year, I think, um, if you save into it. Which, but it can only be used for two things, to pay for your pension or to fund as a deposit for your first house. Now, admittedly, there's bits in those I don't know the, the nitty gritty. So I don't know when it comes to the pension side, whether it's still the statutory retirement age. So it's no different to a pension. So if you're trying to retire like me, your statutory retirement age is 68. And therefore, you can't touch your pension till you're 58. But you had hoped to try and target retiring at 55. You've got three years you have to find yourself. So one way is to say, okay, let's save it in an ISA, part of it in an ISA, to fund me for those three years difference before my pension can start paying. Right. So, yeah. So what you're saying is ISAs still have a part to play. Almost what you're you're describing is what I would understand as an AVC to some degree, which is an additional voluntary contribution that tops up your... Yeah, that tops out your pension scheme, but essentially an ISA can act like that, which gives yes. you your buffer. And like you said, it's a really important point that if you are expecting to retire at a certain point, if something happens, and I know we joked earlier about you know medical issues and all this sort of stuff, but that ha- happens as you get older, you might end up retiring a few years earlier than you otherwise plan to, and you've got a, you know not just a little gap based on whatever your pension's paying, you've got a huge gap, relatively speaking, in terms of monetary value to bridge that gap. And therefore, you might not want to put all of your savings and investments into pensions. You might want to have a percentage of it there and a percentage of it in an ISA. And that's more what I do. I don't put everything into my pension, all my savings into my pension. No, and I think you've also then got essentially a rainy day fund, haven't you? Yes. That's Should right. you need it before that, before that date? Exactly. So I think on that point, it really just comes down to looking at your tax allowances. So making the best use of those from the pension side and then also finding a balance between, you know, pension, ISAs, other forms of savings or investments, whatever you're comfortable with and having that rather than putting all your eggs in one basket, perhaps, because I think what we're saying is pensions are important, but they're not they're not the panacea for retirement, per se. Yes, that's right. So, yeah, I think just in terms of finding that balance is really important. And then I think we just need to say again with all of these things is get some professional financial advice if you're not sure which direction to take, because it's really important that you get your tax positions right. Probably, I think we we covered tax allowances, didn't we, in a previous episode, Philip? And it's just so, so important to get that element right. Because often what you'll find is, oh, I can maximise my return on my investment. And you're going, it's dwarfed by just making the right tax decisions, putting in the right tax wrapper. Yeah, absolutely. You know, as we've said, with pensions, it's, it's tax efficient on the way in. It's not always quite so tax efficient on the way out if you're going to be above certain thresholds. And with ISAs, it's not tax efficient on the way in because typically it's cash you've had to pay tax on, but it's tax efficient on the way out. 
and any earnings you make within that wrapper. So that's why the tax is so significant, I think, in terms of any of these decisions you make. So, yeah, get the advice you need. And we'll say thank you to Philip and we'll see you next time. This programme has been presented for information and educational purposes only. None of the information or content of the programme is to be taken as an offer, opinion or recommendation by the programme's hosts or guests to buy or sell securities, nor is it intended to provide legal, tax, accounting, commercial or financial advice. Opinions and comments are based on information from sources believed to be reliable. All investing involves risk as prices go up or down based on a number of factors. Always consider consulting a financial professional before investing.